0: Hello and welcome to Future Thinking with Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Media and Marketing at Stylus, and today it's a Cannes Lions special. Now in its 66th year, the International Festival of Creativity brings together creatives and storytellers from across the advertising and marketing space for a week of networking and thought leadership and rosé. As ever, Stylus was in attendance to unearth the latest trends and insights. Stephen Graves, Senior Editor for Consumer Attitudes and Technology at Stylus, will be discussing his findings, and I'm very pleased to say we're joined by Maria Garrido, VP of Brand Marketing at Vivendi Village, and also Chief Insights Officer at Havas Group. So, first of all, Stephen, this year's can line was not without controversy, I believe.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, So, a big story this year was the presence and then the absence of Alexander Nix, the former CEO of Cambridge Analytica, and he was um, somewhat unbelievably invited to discuss the morality of data. So Nick's uh, dropped out following criticism from Guardian journalist Carol Cadwallader and the filmmakers behind Netflix's The Great Hack. They staged a guerrilla screening of their documentary, um, and stylist's Julia Ahrens was in attendance and spoke to Cadwallader. I'm at a pop-up screening for the film The Great Hack, which is all about the role that big data and the advertising industry behind it has played in the basic disintegration of our democratic systems. And and so, A, I'm very glad that you pulled this off and I made a lot happen to be here today. And so I would just like to hear your opinion on what can, could have, should have done better possibly this year in acknowledging this issue. I think Lyon is just trying to pretend that it's not happening and that the ad industry has no role in this sort of global dystopia that we can all see happening all around us. You know, everybody sees this, everybody knows this. And I think that individuals who work in the ad industry know this and are really troubled by it. But as an industry... It's just trying to pretend it's not happening. And there's something really, really disturbing about that.
0: So, Maria, I I didn't make it to Cannes this year, but I was following the conversation on Twitter and a lot of the conversation was about this very subject. What is the ad industry going to do about this, this big, glaring issue?
2: Yeah, I think that's. I didn't know he was there to speak about the morality of data. That is just narcissistic beyond beyond belief. But there are two comments I'd like to make. The first is that before we had digital and individual data, brands were still trying to understand the personal experience that people were looking for to try and target them with products. And just as an observation, and this is not an opinion point, but as an observation, I find it interesting that when we use Facebook data um, or Google data to target, to do an emotional analysis of the state that you're in to sell you a soap or a toothpaste, nobody seems to have a problem with that. It's when we cross into political ideology that all the controversy starts. So as an observation point, I find that interesting that we have a line. There's a boundary we're not willing to cross, um, wherever you stand on that point. Um, The second point I want to make is about data privacy. I think it's a big deal. I think obviously you need people's individual consent. Uh, Maybe three or four years ago, we ran a global study to understand how people felt about giving their personal data. And there were two things that stood out. One was culture and one was context. So context to this point about the soap, right? Um, Or the toothpaste versus the political ideology. In the healthcare sector, people were very willing to give their data because they understood very easily what the benefit was for them. Maybe not in the United States because you have, you know, no health insurance, global health insurance, so people, their their insurance premiums might go higher if you have more information. But in the rest of the world, giving your information to healthcare made sense to people and there was no mental or psychological barrier of handing Your data over culturally also very markets were very different. The Chinese population is very used to giving away their data, so they didn't see any problem with any industry having their personal data. Whereas in Western Europe and North America, there was more of a reticence to give away that kind of data. So I think those are two two key issues: what is the context of data privacy, and what is the culture um, that's facing that data privacy? And and the answer is different according to those two those two variables.
1: It's, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, the context and culture there because um, I wonder if one of the reasons why why people are prepared to give away their data is not so much um, because they're delighted to do so, but because they haven't been presented with an alternative at this point. Um, the the entire ecosystem is built around um, exploiting their data, right. and it's very hard to opt out um, of those services. So at the moment, people are tied into that system. It's, it's less an opt in and more apathetic.
2: Well, think about think about the the Apple Watch, right? I mean, you're how are you not opting in to give people your blood pressure, your heart rate, how many steps you took, where you went every day? I mean, that they, I can't believe people were buying a six hundred dollar electric watch on their hand don't know that they're being tracked and everything is being is being captured as data. Um, I struggle with some of those points because I'm I think you're right. In some cases, people don't realize that there's another option, and who reads that twenty five page document they make you consent to before you sign off um, but in other cases like an apple watch like any health kind of applications you are obviously consenting to give away your information
1: on the point of bringing uh, alexander nix to talk at can i'm i'm curious whether it's um simply a case of people being a bit sort of tin-eared um, and and not un- in extending the invitation um, I I would have been interested to actually see the conversation because I'm curious whether they were going to give him a softball interview or whether they were actually going to interrogate him,
2: I don't. You know, I, I told you before we started today that I actually met him. He came to try and pitch his wares to us a couple of years ago, and what he was very transparent. There was no hidden. We have two hundred and fifty million Americans in a database, and we personality profiled all of them. So we know what to, what hot topics this this type of person has versus that type of person. We you know we work on presidential campaigns and and uh, political campaigns around the world, and we help the candidate eighteen months before the election. Election, inform them on what topics they should be addressing in each of the different campaign route stops that they go to. So I, I, for me, I mean, he was never, how should I say, devious about what he was doing. What he was trying to do is then take all of that knowledge, if we can put it that way, um, that they had in the political se- sector and move it over to the consumer sector to work with ad agencies. My issue really is, I mean, how did Facebook not know that people were not consenting to give away their information. That, I have a bigger problem with that because he was never, uh, you know, not transparent about what he was doing.
0: So at Stylus, we've referred to 2019 as the year of the human. Um, so how did Canline reflect this theme of creating more lasting human connections in your in your opinions?
1: Um, There were a couple of interesting panel discussions that uh, that touched on this topic. So um, there was one with, uh, I think, Marriott and Skoda where they were talking about the future of brand experience being human experience. So uh, Marriott was talking about how they're focusing on upscale experiences that sort of address consumer pain points. Um, So one of the things they did was go to Coachella and create tents that were replicas of their own hotel rooms. Um, But then they were looking at the sort of festival experience and how a hotel could maybe address... That experience and resolve all of the sort of pain points of uh, sleeping in a tent in a heat wave uh, or, or a muddy field. Um, so they, uh, they started setting up their own festivals at uh, W Hotels locations. And uh, we actually spoke to uh, Twitter's global head of content, Stacey Monero, about how the social network shift in focus from influencers to creators fits into this mindset.
3: We're trying to move from just earning attention to creating more of an emotional connection and so one of the things that we are investing in is, is the creators who have craft versus just the influencers who bring reach and these are the creators who are the uh, animators, the illustrators, their stop motion designers. They start with the mobile canvas, they don't start with the TVC. And so they can bring incredible storytelling to to a brand campaign or an opportunity. And this is important because we see that uh, people make viewing decisions in milliseconds, and you have to capture attention, right, to slow down the speed of the feed. But then retaining that attention is is not easy. And so these creators, they know how to engineer craft into every piece of content. Um, And so they can be an, an incredible resource to tap into. Um, to tell your brand
0: story. So, Maria, what are your thoughts on this idea of uh, human experience and the need for more of it?
2: I think there's there's definitely she's right in the sense that there is more need for emotional engagement uh, between brands and consumers. That's probably brands leading that one instead of the consumer. But anyway, um, we, we find that you know in in a world where we're all sticking to our phones, people are almost in a sense of suffering from withdrawal of real human interaction. Uh, So we're seeing more and more expectations from consumers that the way they relate to brands is not just through a TBC anymore, but it's real live experiences. It's being part of something that they co-create with the brand. It isn't just about entertainment. It's about, you know, helpful experiences, educational experiences, inspirational stuff, and it runs everything from, like, do a web series, Mister Brandman, all the way through to invite me to a VIP, you know, festival, or or can I be part of something with you? There is much more need for that kind of implication at an emotional level from the consumer.
1: I thought it was quite interesting how she was talking about um, craft versus reach. Um, I think some some of the. Artists and influencers they were talking about working with in their talk only had like a few hundred followers, mm. um, but that didn't matter necessarily because it was actually the quality of the work that they were putting out, and that the brand could sort of facilitate them in gaining that reach. It also ties in with a talk um, that I saw about the uh, the Gen X, uh, the Gen Z, um, uh X demographic, where they were talking about how that demographic in particular actually uh, sort of supports brands that engage and, and boost uh, these sort of micro-influencers and sort of takes them on that journey with them. I'm interested
0: in this idea um, that Stacy mentioned of retaining the attention because I think, you know, as we've discussed here, there's lots of innovative and interesting stuff that brands can do to capture attention. Um, but it's retaining it and building a relationship that's harder. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, you know, one of the other buzzwords we heard a lot this year and probably the year before also was the content marketing, right? And I think we talked about this when we were at Con, that there's a bit of shiny object syndrome in the advertising industry. They all see something that shines and they chase after it before they take the time to actually think it through. And content marketing for me is one of those. So throwing money at content isn't working very well. I mean, our our global numbers show that 58% of consumers think that the content that brands are producing is totally meaningless. So she's right to be looking for new ways (laughs) to emotionally engage people, to capture their attention. Um, But it isn't just about attracting the audiences. It is about retaining them, but giving them what they want, being more user-centric instead of brand-centric. That's why I make the point about, you know, if I'm a consumer who wants to go to a do-it-yourself shop, I'm interested in content that's going to help me fix a problem and not necessarily a celebrity that you slap on your next piece of content you know that the, taking their point of view versus the brand's point of view will be helpful to drive that engagement
1: yeah i agree i think that's absolutely key it's um it's in in both cases here actually it's, it's addressing a pain point it's addressing an actual consumer problem and it's then providing an answer to that which is only actually going to get more important when you start considering stuff like um voice search um mm-hmm. And the growth of that, because essentially, you know, Google's turning into a question engine. It's a problem-solving uh, thing. You, you you consult Google or you consult voice search when you're trying to actually solve something.
2: You and I talked about this, that the brain doesn't work the same when you're asking a voice system... Uh, versus when you're searching online versus when you're sitting inside of a store picking out a product. Brand awareness, brand recall isn't the same. And the the longer you work with a voice system, the less you remember the name of the brand and the more likely you go to the category as a generic, which for brands is major f- alarms should be going off there. Um, one of the things we learned with Universal Music, which really made me laugh, is that the b- highest amount of requests they get through voice systems for listening to tunes is uh, lullabies for babies and Christian rock which is not at all their highest selling music. If you look at it from you know a streaming Spotify point of view, because the voice is solving a problem that a you know a consumer has in their home. I need to get the baby to sleep. Give me a lullaby now. That's not the typical relationship they have with their customers across the Spotify's and the Apple Musics of the world. It's very different.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. In in, in the because I mean I I'm slightly cynical or skeptical about the impact that voice will have in terms of of. Brand marketing, but from that perspective of solving a problem, that's where a brand can step in.
1: Yeah, another theme that I saw uh, referenced on a number of the panels was how emerging markets are becoming these sort of crucibles of innovation in this increasingly connected world. So I spoke to uh, David Guerrero, who's the chairman and CCO of BBDO Guerrero.
3: <laughs> Ideas can come from basically anywhere in the world, and um, and that through. You know, the, one of the consequences of technology, benign consequences, is that you know, that, that now, you know, that can happen, and maybe more easily, and maybe that people, for example, creative talent in our country can access... Um, the the world of of ideas more easily than they used to be able to. They used to you know wait mm-hmm. for somebody to bring an annual back. You know and, and, now, and now they can go online and see everything. So I think you're getting consequences of a lot of new creative talent emerging in lots of different places, and then their ideas you know can be picked up and adopted by smart brands and and spread. So it's that idea of you know that the ideas can come from the the outside in rather than always from the inside out.
0: So. This idea of new creative talent emerging in lots of different places, that's fascinating. And I think, you know, it's going to make a big impact on the industry as a whole. What what are your feelings about this?
2: Um, on the first point about emerging markets have really good ideas, I don't think that's new. I think that's always been the case. I worked in emerging markets for quite a part of my career. It's just that now, as and he's right what he says, that now because of, of the digital universe we live in, there's faster access to even more ideas and we really are in a global community where there's a lot more exchange going on at that level. Um, I, I'm really interested in, in in maybe I'm a bit old fashioned, but going back to to universities and professors and people who are working on emerging technologies and um, and innovation. I've, I've had probably the most insightful conversations I've had in the four and a half years I've been in this group have been with university professors who are looking for the next big thing um, because they have access to, you know, international students. Um, they have partnerships with other universities around the world. That, that's been a real source um, of innovative ideas for us. In terms of sort
1: of practical innovations, one of the really interesting talks that I went to um, was by a company called ZipLine, and they're a drone delivery service for medical supplies. Um, and they have created the world's only autonomous drone traffic management system and in, in Rwanda to deliver blood supplies. And as a consequence of this, they've also created apparently the most one of the most advanced uh, cold storage rooms in the planet there, because they only need to um, they only need two of these things to cover the entire country. And they've sort of leapfrogged the problem of of infrastructure and just created a whole new one that's now more advanced than, say, the U.S.'s drone infrastructure. Um, So I think that's absolutely fascinating. And you're seeing these sort of innovations in in different fields. So obviously that's medical and and a sort of transport infrastructure. But there's also innovations in fields like banking, where they've sort of leapfrogged um, straight to mobile banking and even sort of blockchain-based remittance systems.
2: It's almost it's almost not even leapfrogging infrastructures is because there isn't so many constraints on pre, pre-structured uh, infrastructure that they can jump ahead and, and, and move faster than markets like, you know, North America or Western Europe.
1: Uh, although the other thing that they did mention, which gave me slight pause, was the sort of lack of regulation in some of these markets. Um, so they're able to sort of... I guess move fast and break things, which right, is slightly exactly. concerning. Um, I think <laughs> it's, it's one of those areas where brands or, or innovators do need to look at the potential consequences of what they're developing.
2: But sometimes you fall into, old, you know, old habits die hard. I, I find when in markets like healthcare and where there is a lot of regulation on how you can advertise, how you can communicate to the consumers, you have no choice but to think out of the box if you want to engage the customer with your product. Whereas traditional industries that are more liberal when it comes to regulation will kind of stick to, you know, sit on their laurels and do what they've always done instead of pushing the the boundaries a bit.
1: I think the other thing that was interesting that the guys from Zipline talked about was the fact that because they're working in in the medical field, there's an urgent need for the thing that they do. It's literally life-saving. Whereas if you're trying to develop a drone delivery system to deliver pizzas to someone in you know middle america or whatever that's not exactly an urgent use case so they, they have a, a an impetus to sort of cut through a lot of the uh, the regulation or a lot of the, the the red tape that maybe would tie down other use cases
2: much more interesting to deliver medicine than pizza i think
1: so, um, another interesting topic of conversation was um, underserved demographics. Um, so, there were a couple of talks, uh, one of which was on um, how brands are neglecting what they called the over 50s, but really they were talking about, I think, boomers and seniors um, throughout the, the conversation. Um, so, this demographic has a much greater spending power than um, millennials and Gen Z, um, and yet most campaigns are directed, I mean, I think that the thing they said in the intro was that, you know, if you look at the top line of a brief, it's always going to say age first and it's always going to be 25 to 35 or millennials. Um, So uh, I think it was Grey London presented some findings from a survey where they said that uh, 70% of creatives have not received or written a brief, including 50 plus in the last year. And uh, 31% have never received or written a brief at all aimed at the 50 plus demographic.
2: The purchasing power, they still have more than half of the purchasing power in the world, and it's like we're ignoring them, you know, which is amazing to me. They are buying online. They're not, you know, completely not up to date with what's going on in the digital world. Um, one, some of the things that we've talked about with clients especially is that uh, they have a different relationship to brands than a Gen Z or a millennial. Um, and I know we don't want to bucket them into into age groups, but they, they tend to be more sincere, if I can say that, in their relationships. When they find a brand that works for them— that improves that deals with a problem or that that helps them improve an issue they're trying to they're trying to solve for. If they advocate for the brand, they're doing it from a more sincere place. Every time we look at millennial studies, and I'm not making this up, in over thirty countries, the number one benefit they're looking for in most industries is helps me show off. <laughs> you know, so this is not something that pops up when I look at when I look at boomers. Um, they really are – when they advocate for a brand, it's because it's been a good experience for them and they want to share that with other people. Um, that might be a bit cliche, but that's at least what the data is showing us. So for me, it's a massive audience that could be used as a media touchpoint that we're completely ignoring. I mean, they are an audience that will amplify the message for the brands they have a good experience with.
1: And it's interesting you mentioned sort of, yeah, let's not focus on age. That was something that came out of the conversations uh, in these panel discussions was that um, rather than focusing on age, brands should consider behavioral signaling. There are 70-somethings who think and act in the same way as 20-somethings. And conversely, there are, you know, there will be 30 or 40-somethings who act like the cliched boomer, I guess.
2: I did want to make a funny point because there's an irony about what you've said, that industries aren't addressing their needs. You know, they're not receiving briefs. And funny, when we looked at it, the only industry, strangely enough, who where a lot of seniors felt that they were slightly being represented was in fashion and beauty, which is not the place that you would expect (laughs) seniors to be represented. But that was the only industry that they identified or perceived was actually making an effort to show representatives of themselves uh, in, their, in their advertising.
1: And an interesting point that was raised, actually, was that um, there's a problem in agencies that, that there aren't that many people in that demographic who are actually working at the coalface. They're all, you know, they've all been promoted up to C-suite level. So you don't actually have that voice in the conversation. We talk a lot about having diverse voices in terms of gender and race, but age is also an important consideration.
0: So, some key takeaways from uh, this fantastic discussion is uh, the industry needs to acknowledge its responsibility, I think, for its role in the social media ecosystem, Um, build human connections through experience and craft, look to emerging markets for the next big idea, and obviously... Um, Don't neglect the 50-plus generation. So, Stylus will be back at CanLine next year to bring you more creative insights. And Future Thinking will be back next week with the latest in thought leadership. So, thanks to my guests, Stephen Graves and Maria Garrido. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com if you like what you heard today make sure you subscribe to future thinking in itunes or spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're
3: available